0: Or his mother, what you have would have gained from me is given to God. Uh, I'm sorry. What you would what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, "This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me." In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees uh, were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my Heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you that you've given us minds to study the word that you have committed to us. We pray that you would send your spirit to now guide us as we study the teachings of our Savior, And that we would learn about who you are and learn about who we are. And, uh, Lord, lead us into faith, into deeper understanding that we would no longer be conformed to the ways of this world, but we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds through your word now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let me just fix my little slack there. Okay. There we go. All right. Matthew, uh, Matthew 15, uh, we're looking at passage this morning that talks about something that's really at the heart of the vision. Oh my goodness, sorry. Am I doing that, Titus? Is that me? What's that? What would I do? Hold on, hold on. All right. Um, okay. If it happens one more time, I might switch mics. So, All right. We're looking at a passage this morning that uh, talks about something that's really at the heart of the vision of our church. And uh, because one of the things that uh, the Bible says is that there are essentially two ways that you can approach God. You might call one way religion and the other way the gospel. And if if you define religion as, if I obey, then God will love me subtle difference in the gospel, which says, God loves me perfectly in Christ, therefore I will obey. A subtle difference in these two, between the religion and the gospel, and yet one of them leads to life and one of them leads to death. And I'll tell you why this distinction, the difference between religion and the gospel is so important for the life of our church because I just want you to imagine for a minute a community that is built on the principle of religion, that if I obey, then God will love me. What, what would be some of the words that come to your mind to describe a community built on that principle? Well, um, you know, for one, there'd be a sense of fear in the community, right? Did I obey enough to win God's love? Have I obeyed enough? There'd be a sense of fear. There would be a judgmental spirit kind of evaluating, has that person obeyed enough for God to love them? And uh, and then, you know, a comparing. Well, at least, you know, at least I'm not as bad as that person. So maybe God loves me. And so you have a competitive spirit, which also results in envy. And then also, would people be open about, you know, the ways they don't, dis- they don't obey God, the sins that are happening in their life? Are they going to talk about those things if God's love for them is dependent on their obedience? No, they're going to hide those things. They're going to hide the sins that are happening in their life. So... Imagine a whole community, the whole atmosphere of a community is shaped by that principle that if I obey, then God will love me. But what happens if you reverse it? Now you have a community based on the principle that God loves me perfectly in Christ, and therefore I want to obey. Well, first of all, there's going to be a spirit of joy in that community that God has loved us freely, not because I had to earn it, but it was a gift. He's given me a free gift. He's given himself to me as a free gift. And, you know, I'm going to be quite open about things that are happening in my life because God's love for me is not dependent on how obedient I am. So I'm, I'm going to be open about the things I'm struggling with, the sins that are going on in my life. I'm going to seek help in those things. And you know what? I'm also going to be more compassionate to other people because I knew that, you know, what my standing in this church, my standing with God is not based on me being a good person, but it's based on God's love. And, you know, if you're struggling with something, I'm going to have compassion on you. I can overlook all kinds of sins and welcome you in. And I'm not going to look down on you. And so it's a radically different whole atmosphere based on this different principle. But this is the thing that's interesting is you look at the religious person who says, I obey, therefore God loves me. And you look at the gospel person who says, God loves me, therefore I want to obey. On the surface, they actually look very similar, right? They both go to church. They both read the Bible. They both pray. They both talk about Jesus, and so, what's the difference? The difference is their hearts. The religious person is brimming over actually with pride of their goodness. The gospel person is brimming over with thanksgiving and joy. And so, it is um, this—sorry about that—it um, is this distinction that uh, Jesus is talking about this passage. And one of the things that we have to ask as a church, say, man. Which community do I want to be a part of, the religious community or the gospel community? And of course, all of us are saying, I want to be a part of the gospel community. How do we be a gospel community? What makes us like that? And one of the things that we learn in this passage that Jesus says is, you know, among other things, part of the key is how we read the scriptures. How you read the Bible will inform what your community is going to be like. And you see this here in verse 7. As Jesus is talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, or you might describe them as relig- the religious community around him, and he says, For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. This people uh, uh, well did uh, you hypocrites, right? You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah uh, prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The reason that the scribes and Pharisees have a superficial religion that hasn't transformed their heart, Jesus says it is because of the way that they read the Bible, the way they read the scriptures, and their allegiance to the Bible. And so one of the questions, the question we're going to talk about this morning as we study this passage, is how can we read the Bible in a way that leads us not to be a religious community, but a gospel-centered community. What are the principles that Jesus gives us? And there are four. These are what, this is what they are. The first, the, the scriptures are unified. Second, the scriptures are progressive. Third, the scriptures are authoritative. And fourth, the scriptures are about the heart. Okay, four things. And you might not know what any of those mean, so far, but we'll talk about each one, okay? So, um, and you know, one thing is before we get into the four things, I you know, I was thinking about the sermon, and I recognize that you know, there's different sermons. There's kind of different kinds of sermons. You know, there's some sermons that are, tend to be more practical. You know, if you have a sermon on marriage or something like that, applying the gospel to marriage, you know, it's really concrete, deals with our life. There's other sermons that are more inspirational. You know, you leave just excited that, about God's love and His goodness, and you joyful. And there's other sermons that are just about teaching and learning about what the Bible understands and kind of shaping our intellect, our minds. This, this is probably that third category of sermons. So, you know, just to prepare you to uh, give your minds uh, to understanding God's word. So we've got a lot to cover. First thing is this. The scriptures are unified. The Bible is unified. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, um, this passage begins with these scribes and Pharisees who've come from Jerusalem up to uh, Galilee. Should I change this out? I think I'm going to change this out. Okay. All right. Oop. A little slack there. Okay. Is this working? Hey, hey. My microphone, this is a little weird. All right, hold on a sec. Hey, hey, here I am. All right, check it out. Not as many hand motions today. Maybe you're excited about that. Okay. Okay, this passage, <laughs> this passage uh, begins with these scribes of Pharisees who've come t- from Jerusalem up to Galilee, which is in the northern north of, of Jerusalem. And it, it begins in verse 1 by saying, uh, then... Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders so they do not wash their hands when they eat? Now, some of you might hear this question from the scribes and Pharisees, you know, about why aren't they washing their hands before they, you know, doing ceremonial washings before they eat? And the thing that's ringing in your head, you say, Religion, that sounds like religion, you know, religious rules that they want to impose on the disciples. And you know another word that uh, Christians will use to describe what what the scribes, scribes and Pharisees are doing here is something called legalism. And some of you may know that word. Legalism is when people add laws to the the commandments that God has given in the Bible. And and for some of you, you may hear that word legalism when we think of you know a legalistic person is someone who just takes the Bible really seriously. That's not what legalism is. Legalism is when you're adding lost to what God's word has actually said, the commandments of men, the traditions of men, and putting them on other people. And that's why it's interesting, it's important to notice that Jesus does not respond to legalism by saying, oh, you scribes and Pharisees, you, you take the Bible too seriously. You read it too much and you're applying it too much. That's not what he says. Look at what he says in, in verse three. He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God, commanded, for God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles his father and mother uh, must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father and mother, what you have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So, now listen to this, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. And so what Jesus does is in order to correct legalism and the laws of the religious people, he doesn't say, oh, you're taking the Bible too seriously. He says, you're not taking the Bible seriously enough. You are making void the word of God. You haven't studied it and applied it to your life. And you've added laws that you take very seriously, but the Bible you don't take very seriously. And, you know, I I think, you know, for many Christians... I think we think of the Bible off, often in, in terms of being broken up into these two distinct parts of the Old Testament and the New Testament, which have very different views of God. So, you know, it's very common for people to say, you know, in the Old Testament, you were saved by doing good works. You know, God was a God of wrath, and you had to do good works in order to please him. And then Jesus came, and everything changed, and now we're saved by grace, and, you know, and we're, or we're saved through by grace through faith, and it's not based on our works. But actually what Jesus does here when he corrects the legalism what does he do he quotes the old testament. And he says actually the old testament is gospel. And the reason for that is actually when you go back into the old testament what you find is you don't find Israel was trying to earn God's approval by being by doing good works. That's not what it was. You go back into the Exodus and when God saved Israel out of the Exodus out of e- in, in the Exodus out of Egypt he said to them it wasn't because you were righteous that I saved you. It wasn't because you were a great nation or you were strong or you were mighty. It was because of my promises to you. And it was after he rescued them and saved them and liberated them, then he gave them the 10 commandments and said, this is how you live with me and this is how you be my people. And so even in the Old Testament, it's God has loved us perfectly in Christ and therefore as a response, we obey. And so what you see is that the scriptures have a unity to them. This gospel principle of grace is not just something that's in the New Testament. It's throughout the whole scriptures. This is the whole storyline of the Bible is that God made a good world. Humanity has rebelled against God. We've turned our back on him. And so now he has come to pursue us in his grace and to restore a relationship to him. This is the whole storyline of the Bible. It's not just the New Testament. But it's, it's um, from the fall on, that's what God has been doing. And I, actually, we have a, a pastor in our Presbytery who during one of his sermons, he had the whole church turn to the, you know the page between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and where it says New Testament, he says, everyone open your Bible, I want you to turn to the one uninspired page in your whole Bible, is the page that divides the Old Testament and the New Testament, and I want you to rip it out, the whole congregation ripped it out in, during the worship service, we're not going to do that today, maybe, uh, Maybe I'll build up to that someday But his point was there's not this huge divide It is a unified story of God's grace Is what we're learning in the scriptures So that's one of the first ways That how do we become a church That is centered on the gospel Is to understand to read the gospel As a story of God's Read the whole Bible as a story of God's grace So the scriptures are unified But the second thing oh now, Now how do I do this Okay, One handed I'm used to two hands here Okay, you know, I need it. I'm sorry. This is... This isn't gonna work. What's that? I'm sure. We good? We on? Alright. Back at it. You guys are very patient. Thank you. Um. <laughs> Alright, where, where are we? Okay, we got one point down. Scripture unified. Second, this, but you know, one of the things, if if we understand that the Bible is a story, one thing is about stories is that stories, as you move through the stories, the story develops. Things change. There's movement in a story. And so the second thing that we learn about the scriptures from Jesus is that they're not just unified, but the scriptures are also progressive. And, you know, I have to confess that I almost cut this whole point out of the sermon because it was hard for me to fit in, but there's a, an issue in this text that some of you may have this question, and I just couldn't answer it if you have the question. Some of you might say, I wasn't even thinking about that. So... Uh, But we're going to address it. So the the second thing is that the scriptures are progressive. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Because some of you, when you hear me say, oh, you know, there's there's no division between the Old Testament that God dealt with people in this way in the Old Testament. And he deals with people in a new way in the New Testament. There's not this division. Some of you will say, well, what about verse 10? Look at verse 10. What does Jesus say? And Jesus called the people to him and said to him, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. And actually, if you go to the Gospel of Mark, which Mark tells the same story, he adds a little comment in there where Mark says, Thus Jesus declared all foods clean. Now what Jesus and Mark are talking about is in the Old Testament, there actually there were laws about God's people, that they weren't allowed to eat foods that were deemed unclean, like, for example, pork. You know, there was no bacon on their breakfast tables. No, they weren't allowed to eat blood, right? No medium-rare steaks, juicy steaks. They weren't allowed to eat any of that. And, uh, and so here, Jesus transforms that law. He changes the law. And I actually, by the way, if you were here last, last week, I had mentioned that, you know, on every page of the New Testament basically tells us that Jesus is God. And here's another place. Because you ask, you know, God gave a law in the Old Testament. Who's the only person who can change the law? God. So if Jesus is changing the law, what does that make Jesus? Jesus must understand himself to be, um, to be God. But this raises a question. How can we say that the Old Testament and the New Testament are unified when Jesus is clearly changing the laws from the Old Testament. So how is there unity? How is there, isn't there a strong discontinuity here? Well, the answer is because the Bible's telling a story. It's progressive. We are progressing. We are at a different stage of the story, a different place in the story. But then that raises a question. You say, well, there's all these laws in the Old Testament. Would we just say we just throw them all out? Do some of them apply to us? Do others not apply to us? Which ones you know, do we still hold on to? Well, historically, Christians have said one helpful way to think about this is that there are three kinds of laws found in the Old Testament. It's very hard to splice them out into three, three kinds, but this is, they're, they're helpful categories. That first of all, there were in the Old Testament c- um, civic laws about Israel as a nation. And these laws don't apply to us because we don't live in the nation of Israel. We live in the United States of America. So we have to submit to the laws of the United States of America because we don't live in Israel anymore. So those don't apply to us. But then there are other laws that are called the moral law. And this would be things like the Ten Commandments. to say, honor your mother and father and don't steal and you know don't lie and don't covet your neighbor's possessions. And all those things we read and we say, those all still apply. Those are fixed, unchangeable laws. This is a picture of of how humanity is supposed to function in God's world. And it is this fixed vision that God's given us of of his kingdom and what life in his kingdom is like. So those don't change. They still apply to us. But there's a third category of laws called the ceremonial laws. The ceremonial laws were all these um, aspects of, of religious life in Israel that were all pictures pointing us to Jesus. These were things like the sacrifices. You know, there were sacrifices they had in the temple. Well, now Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. So we don't need to do the sacrifice anymore because Jesus has done uh, the sacrifice once for all. And there's laws like uh, these clean and unclean laws of things that you can eat and can't eat that were supposed to teach you about sin and the state of our hearts. And now Jesus said, we don't need the picture anymore. We're going to now really talk about our hearts and talk about sin. And I'll tell you what the ceremonial law is kind of like. I've shared this uh, illustration with you before. Um, when Shannon and I were first dating, she went to Washington State uh, University over in uh, in Pullman, and I went to Western here in Bellingham. We're six hours apart. And we spent that full year apart from each other. Maybe we'd see each other every three weeks or so. And so we wrote all kinds of letters, and we'd send pictures and things, and I had a, this box full of letters that I got from Shannon and, and pictures, and I studied them, you know, every word of the letter, and what did she mean when she said that, and I, you know, stared at her picture, and she's so beautiful, and how I longed to be with her. And then, after, at the end of our first year, she moved to Western. She was actually here. And what do you think happened to those pictures and letters? they were in a box under, you know, in the closet somewhere, right? I didn't need the pictures and letters anymore because I had the real thing. And so that's why the ceremonial lot has pass away. We don't need the pictures and letters anymore because the real thing, Jesus, is here. And so there's a progression. We're at a different place in the story where the real thing is here. And so since we have him, those don't apply to us anymore. Now, as we think about that, uh, these uh, three kinds of laws, the civil law, the moral law, and uh, and the ceremonial law. What you'll notice is that in God's law and in the word, there is both a fixed point and there is progression, there's change. There's something that remains unchanging and something that's changing, right? The, The ceremonial law is the story. The moral law is God's picture of his kingdom that doesn't change, and this is an important point because, you know, in a place like Bellingham, many people would say, when they hear that the scriptures are progressive, we would, what do we say? Yes. We're, we're growing up. The, humanity's changing. And there's a question of, you know, if the laws change from the Old Testament to Jesus, why don't they keep changing? Why do we modern people insist that we have to believe what the Bible says and live according to the Bible? Maybe we've continued to progress and move past it. Why don't we keep progressing? That's a hard question, right? Why don't we move on from, you know, the sexual norms of, of the Bible and the, the morality of the Bible? Why don't we move on from that? That's a hard question, right? How do we answer that? Well, the answer to that is really in the word Progress. In order to make progress, to move forward, you always need both a fixed point and something that's moving. So let me give you another analogy. Imagine that you're downtown and you're going to drive to church. Oh, whoopsies, I'm running off here. Um, Problems with the mic this morning. Uh, Imagine that you're downtown and you're going to come to church. You're going to drive to church. You're going to come up northwest and and come to the Birchwood neighborhood and drive to church. And so you're driving along, you're making progress towards the church. You're getting closer, right? Because the car is moving and you have a pathway that's taking you there. And let's say that you're on your way and you come past Yeager's on Northwest, and all of a sudden the church disappears and transports itself down into Fairhaven. And you're next to Yeager's and you're about to turn onto Birchwood, and are you making progress towards the church? No, you're getting farther away from the church, you're not making progress. Because the only way you can make progress is if you have a fixed destination of where you're moving towards. What's happened in our culture is our culture wants to throw away the vision of where we're going as humanity and as a world. They want to throw away. That's the moral law. And so we don't have a destination anymore. And so our culture wants to continue to change and to adapt and to evolve, but where are we moving towards? And if we move the destination, Every generation change the moral law. We are actually not making progress. And so, what's amazing about the Bible is the Bible gives us two things. It both gives us the fixed point of where we're moving towards, vision of God's kingdom and His moral law. It also gives us the path. And the path is Jesus, right? That's what Jesus says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, I'm the way. I'm the path. And it's when we walk with him that we begin to make progress towards this fixed point of God's vision of what humanity should be, of what the world should be. And if we don't take God's vision of what the world should be and what humanity should be, what vision are we moving towards? A man-made vision that will always be changing. And so we will never make progress. And it's for this reason, actually, that Christians have always been instrumental in cultural progress in any society that the gospel has entered into. And you look at the most important cultural developments that are important to us as you know, people that are living in Bellingham. Universal education and literacy, the development of hospitals, the development of research universities, um, a, a social conscience about the poor, um, even science itself, the development of science, the abolition of slavery. Take any of these things that are the biggest cultural developments in the history of the world, they were all initiated by Christians. And cultural historians, Christians or not, will say that the roots of all of these things are in, in the teachings of Jesus. He is the path towards progress. And so, that's another thing. It's an interesting thing about the, it, the, that the Bible tells one story and yet it is a story that's moving towards this goal of the kingdom of God. And when we become Christians, we become a part of that story. Okay? So, How then do we as a community become a part of that progress and that movement forward in the coming of his kingdom? How do we do that? Well, the third thing that Jesus insists on in this passage is that we also see that the scriptures are authoritative. That scriptures play an authoritative role in our community and our individual lives. And you can see that there, of course, in verse 6 again. Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees, For the sake of your tradition... You have made void the word of God. You've made the scriptures invalid. And um, Jesus' understanding of the Bible in our life is that it should have an absolute authority over our lives as Christians. Which means that God is our king. when When you say, I believe in Jesus, I want to follow him, you say, he's my king. And the way that God rules over us is through this document. This is the document that he's entrusted to us to rule over our lives. We have to study it. We have to submit to it. And absolute submission, that it rules over our intellectual life. It rules over our emotional life. It rules over our behavior and our actions and everything that we do. And I know, you know, for some of you, you might say absolute authority, absolute submission to the book. And that that may make you uneasy um, to give such power to something. Because you might say, well, if it has absolute authority, is there no room for questions? Is there no room for doubting? I mean, there's a lot of things in the Bible that unsettle me. Do I just, do I just pretend that they don't unsettle me? No, that's not what you do. As Christians, there's always gonna, there are always going to be things that unsettle us about the Bible. And we live in this relationship with the Bible where we say, this is God's word. I can't, I, I'm not in a position to say it's wrong. But, I, but God also allows us to admit that there are things that unsettle us. You know, Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt. There's, there's a place for us to wrestle without shutting down the Bible. But we might also think, you know, if I say that the Bible has absolute authority over my life, is it just going to, you know, scrutinize everything I'm doing and it's going to feel like, uh, you know, a straitjacket, like I can't do anything, I don't have any freedom because I have to give absolute, you know, obedience to this book. And, uh, you know, it's going to feel like I'm living in a totalitarian state where everything I'm doing is being analyzed by the Bible. Is that what it's going to be like? Absolutely not. Actually, Jesus says it is the exact opposite. Jesus says earlier in Matthew, when we follow him, take my yoke upon you. Uh, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And also, First John says that his commandments are not burdensome. And, and actually, if you read about the fruit of the Spirit, which is a description of what life under God's rule is like, you know that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness... The Apostle Paul says, against such things there is no law, which means life with God is freedom. Life with God is good things running wild, as G.K. Chesterton says. And so um, when we submit to the absolute authority of the Bible, um, we are not going uh, to lose our freedom. It is actually, Jesus says, the commandments of men. It is religion that puts us in a straitjacket. It is religion that is oppressive and suffocating. When we add things to the scripture, when we add laws that the Bible didn't give. And that's what's happening with the scribes and Pharisees is, is there's a whole tradition that for years had built on hundreds and hundreds of laws that were being added to the good law that God's given us in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so what that means is, you know, how do we be a church that's not a re- church about religion, but a church about the gospel? one of the things we have to be vigilant on is to not go beyond what is written. You can't go beyond what the Bible says. And we constantly have to be asking ourselves, because as a religious community, we're going to have expectations for one another. These are things you should be doing. This is how you should think. This is how you should act. And all of our strong convictions, we always have to come back to and say, is that really in the Bible? Does the Bible insist on that? And if we don't keep that in check, then we will become what the scribes and Pharisees uh, had created. Now, listen, that's an interesting thing. Because you think about, what is it like to say that the Bible is authoritative? Well, on the one hand, it says that we have a very high view of what God said in the scriptures. But it also frees us to say no to all kinds of rules and laws that man imposes upon us. And as long as we can say no to those things, there's going to be freedom and joy in following Christ. Okay? So those are three principles so far that Jesus says that... that he views the Bible as, as unified but progressive. And it's also authoritative that we should live in, in submission to it. But probably the most important aspect that Jesus says about the scriptures, about understanding how we read the scriptures, is to understand that the scriptures are about the heart. The aim, the thing that Jesus says the Bible should be targeting in our lives is what is happening inside of our hearts. Not, as, not how people perceive us on the outside, but what's happening on the inside. And of course, you see that there in verse 16. And Jesus said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come... Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hand does not defile anyone. And what Jesus is saying is in a religious life, you can spend so much time doing religious activities, like in this example, ceremonial washings of your hands, it looks very religious, and your heart is never touched. Your heart is never addressed. And, you know, if you're visiting with us today and you're thinking about what is the Bible about, uh, what is the gospel about, this is one of the key things to understand is that the Bible will not make sense to us unless we understand Jesus' words here. That each one of us, you know, we've been trained in our culture to say, you know, I'm a good person. I'm a decent guy, you know, I haven't murdered anyone, I haven't robbed a bank, I, you know, for the most part I'm pretty nice to people, I don't get in fights or anything like that. And, and, you know, our default is that we're good people. And Jesus says that out of each one of our hearts, all of these things flow, murder, sexual immorality, um, theft, false witness, lying. Slander, cutting other people down—all of these things live in each one of our hearts. And unless we come to realize that I need—I need a new heart. I need to be saved from my heart. I don't need religious activities that are going to change me. I need a transformation of my heart. And unless we come to understand that, we'll never understand the scriptures. And so—and um, this is why Jesus is always quoting the Bible when he's teaching. That's why he quotes the Bible. He quotes Isaiah here. He quotes uh, Exodus 20. He quotes uh, uh, Deuteronomy. Is um, He's teaching us all of these things because the Bible is like a two-edged sword that cuts into our hearts and shows us what is in our hearts. And so, as we come to the end, this is the real difference between religion and the gospel. Religion, if I obey, then God will love me, never addresses my heart. But when my heart is addressed, I realize I, couldn't, I have so many things in my heart, I could never earn God's approval. The only way I can be loved by Him is if He freely loves me and forgives all my sins. And when we address the reality of our hearts, what happens is we find out that God does love us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He loved me, He chose me while I was still a sinner. He sees all the darkness that's in my heart, and He still says He wants me to be His. And he will wash me and he'll forgive me. And when I realize that, he wants to be a father and he wants me to call me his child and he wants to use me to serve him towards this kingdom and this progress in the world. And when I realize all these things, what happens to my heart? My heart is softened and it's filled with joy and it's filled with love and I want to be compassionate. And I want to serve him and I want to worship him and I want to tell people about him because that's what's naturally flowing out of my heart. This is the essence of of a gospel-centered community is that the gospel alone changes our hearts. So the question for you, how are you approaching God? Which one of these is the principle that's guiding your approach to God? Jesus bids you to come to him today with all the turmoil that's in your heart, knowing that he alone can make it new. To come to him how, how you really are, and to taste the sweetness of the gospel. So let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word, the honesty of your word, teaching us of what is in our hearts. Give us courage to turn to you and to embrace the free grace that is in Jesus. And would that grace transform us, and would you make us into a community that is filled with with joy and gratitude, um, with compassion towards one another, with honesty about what's really, the things we are really struggling with, our real doubts, our real sins, Uh, that we may obey you out of an overflow of love. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.